My name is Devin. Uh, I'm the uh, director at Gaia House in Devon in the UK. So I'll be your host this evening. And uh, thank you for introducing yourself in the in the message. The, the chat room is going to be turned off for most of this this evening so that we can uh, not get too distracted from uh, uh, speakers this evening. But it will be opened again later when we get to the Q&A. So you can ask questions that way if you like. Uh, and thanks for Stephen Batchelor and Brad Warner, uh, to, who have joined us this evening to bring us all together and show our financial support for both Guy House and uh, the Angel City Zen Centre. So whoever you registered for this event through, you've, you've made a, a financial contribution to the ongoing survival of these wonderful Dharma organisations. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm hosting this evening, as I say, and I'm just going to... Uh, see if I can spotlight myself. There we go. This is me. Hi. <laughs> and um, this evening we uh, will be um, inviting uh, some discussion with uh, between Stephen and Brad, and you'll be invited to offer questions. And I can see from uh, people introducing themselves that there are people from probably further afield than any of these events I've hosted before. We've got people coming in from the usual London, um, Sweden, Germany, uh, Ireland and Scotland, but also the Greece, the Netherlands, Sweden, Chile, New York, Ohio, Montreal, Canada. Uh, it's, it's a really international event this evening. So once more, thank you to everyone for your support in uh, coming here. Thank you to all the people behind the scenes who've enabled this to happen and helped it to run smoothly. Uh, it's with great pleasure that I introduce um, uh, the discussion with Brad Warner and Stephen Batchelor. These are two of my absolute favourite authors. Um, uh, they both make the Dharma access very accessible to a, a, a modern uh, the modern human, in, in, but in very different ways, um, very utterly engaging, but very different ways. Brad Warner is the uh, founding teacher of Angel City Zen Center in Los Angeles, in California. And he's also the author of his most recent book, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Uh, his first book, Hardcore Zen, um, one of my favorites, Sit Down and Shut Up, Don't Be a Jerk and other engaging titles. He's also a, an ordained uh, Zen Buddhist monk. He was ordained by Guido Nishijima Roshi, who translated the works of Dogen. Um, uh, he grew up in Arkon in Ohio, uh, in Nairobi, uh, in Kenya, and practiced Zen for over 30 years. Also plays the bass guitar in the hardcore punk band Zero Defects. And uh, worked in Japan for the company who founded the creator of, uh, sorry, the, who founded um, the uh, creator of Godzilla and appeared in the film Zombie Bounty Hunter, MD. Um, there's a documentary about him entitled Brad Warner's Hardcore Zen. Uh, we also have Stephen Batchelor with us. He's a, a translator, teacher, an artist, and a writer, well known for his secular approach to the Dharma, co-founder of the Bodhi College. His books include uh, one, of, one of my favorites, uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs, uh, also Living with the, De the Devil, Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, um, are secular Buddhism and after Buddhism. His most recent publication, The Art of Solitude, was published by Yale University in 2020, and he lives in the southwest of France with his wife Martine. So one of the first books I ever read was uh, Stephen Batchelor's Buddhism Without Beliefs. It was instrumental in my uh, life path, and uh, later after enjoying Brad's book, uh, There Is No God and He's Always With You, 
I've, I've often wondered what these two would have to say to each other if they got, got together in a room. And now the, the marvels of, of lockdown and COVID have enabled us to get together in ways we never could before. So um, we've realised this, this opportunity for these people with quite different takes on uh, Zen and Buddhism, or at least different takes in presentation, to come together and answer some questions. But before we do, Stephen's kindly offered to take us through a, just a 10 minute guided meditation to help us to ground. And uh, then we'll get into the questions. Over to you, Stephen. Thank you very much, uh, Devin. Um, and particularly for having enabled this conversation to take place. Uh, as you say, uh, it's, it's a wonderful chance for me too to get to know Brad a bit better uh, in person rather than through his uh, books, which I also have greatly enjoyed. Uh, we're going to start with just basically stopping and uh, bringing our attention to our breath, a koan, whatever it might be that you find is able to anchor your awareness uh, in the present moment. Um, I'm assuming that everyone here is uh, a meditator of one kind or another, so I'm not going to say a great deal, um, but just come to rest in your body, be aware of your contact with your chair or whatever you're sitting on, your contact with the ground, uh, become aware of the fact that you are embodied, that you have a beating heart and a pulse and you have breath coming in and out of your body all the time. And that you're also in a, an environment. You can hear and smell and see and taste and touch what's around you. But for the next few minutes, let's just sit with that and bring our attention into the immediacy of what's taking place without judgment or preference, just stopping and saying, yes, this is where I am right now, this is what's going on. And at the end, I'll ring a bell.
If you get distracted, just gently come back to where you were and start again. So uh, I've got a few set questions here for you both just to get to get things started. Um, so Brad, you've written a number of books with uh, the word reality on the title. Um, first question is for you. What role uh, does talking about and understanding truth or reality have in Buddhist practice? Well, uh, good question. All right. Uh, what what uh, role does uh, truth or reality or talking about truth or reality? Oh, my God, I look unreal. I have this virtual background and it looks bizarre. Maybe I should take that off. Um, then it'll make me look more realistic. But uh, what role does talking about truth or reality? There I am in just a plain blank white wall. Um, have in Buddhist practice. Let's see. Uh, I got into Buddhist practice because... I wanted to find out what this world I'm living in was and what this life I'm living in was. And uh, I didn't have a religious 
upbringing. My family just, we weren't atheists or anything. We just uh, not, came from a family where nobody really cared about religion or going to church. So I didn't have that sort of a thing uh, going on. So the only, the only kind of um, idea I had about reality was whatever I got from sort of, uh, I guess you'd call secular society or, or school or whatever that I was this sort of meat machine on this uh, rock in space. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, my, my mind was, uh, was, was actually just uh, the activity of this lump of uh, hamburger in my head and, and all this kind of very materialistic sort of worldview. And I wasn't sure if that was uh, true or not. It, it seemed... <clears throat> It seemed somehow lacking, and I don't know if it was uh, just because I wanted it to be something else or, or because it was something else. I, I wanted to find out uh, what it was. So I went through, um, I, I went to a couple of churches, was terribly disappointed, and I ended up finding a, a Zen teacher in uh, when I was um, my first year at Kent State University. And uh, he was a student of Kobenchino Otagawa Roshi, who uh, there's a book out of his uh, talks now called Embracing Mind, if anybody's interested in seeing what uh, what Coben had to say about things. And I, I just thought this was a this was a really interesting approach to the problem of finding out what reality was. Uh, th- this uh, Shikantaza Zazen, which is uh, just sitting, which is a, a kind of Zazen, which is completely goalless. You're not trying to have an experience or, or get anywhere or change yourself or become more mindful or become enlightened or you know, any of these things you're, you're thinking of that you, you might be trying to do with a meditation practice. You're, you're just trying to get into the, uh, the full experience of doing this really, really simple act of just sitting. So uh, I got, I got uh, into that and that, that seemed like a really good way to approach, to approach this question of what is reality. Uh, the the problem, since the question is about talking about reality, the problem is that talking about what one experiences through a practice like that is, is really difficult. It may be impossible. Uh, Kodo Sawaki Roshi, who was the teacher of my other Zen teacher, Guru Nishijima, uh, said that all of all of Buddhism is just a footnote to Zazen, which I like that. Uh, that was a nice little quote that it, it, trying to explain what it is. Now, having said that, I find it's useful to me to hear people who have done some of that sort of meditation experience, have had deeper experiences in meditation, talk about their experiences. I, I found uh, reading Dogen to be extremely useful. Dogen is the uh, 13th century Zen teacher who founded the sort of version of Zen that I do, the Soto Zen, at least in the Japanese branch of it, uh, apparently came over from China. Or he brought it over from China. Um, and and he, he gives a lot of, uh, he spends a lot, he, he wrote a lot. Uh, for a guy who died when he was 54 years old, he put out a, a, a ton of written material. I'm, <clears throat> I'm amazed I'm older now than he was when he died, and I feel like I can't match his output. But this, uh, this uh, large output of writing that he, he created um, seeks to talk about reality or, or talk about the, uh, what it is that we are living in, where, what this place is and who we are. But it's it's difficult because it 
you can't give a straight answer. When I was when I first started this practice, I was hoping for a straight answer and getting very frustrated at my teachers for not giving one. You know, like it's it's all cheese, you know, or something, you know, like that that would that would be that would explain it all, you know. Um, but whenever I came across versions of that, I, I just found them silly. You know, I spent a I never joined the Hare Krishna movement, but I sort of hung around the fringes of it when I was uh, first uh, a student at university. And they are very good at, at uh, ex- you know, here's what it is. You know, it's, it's uh, you are the eternal servant of Krishna. And if you're a good person, when you die, you'll get to go to Krishna Loka where he lives and hang out with him. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's very, it's very detailed, you know, they have books with paintings in it and that show you what it looks like and everything. And you're like, okay, I got that. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't accept that. So uh, listening to this rather loose, vague talk that Zen people get into when they talk about uh, the nature of reality, oh, God, it's been so helpful to me. And, and, uh, why is that? <laughs> I'm asking myself now as I say this. I think it's because it makes me feel like I'm not alone in my in my feeling that, okay, maybe this standard way of understanding reality is not quite correct. And um, maybe there is a better approach to things. Mm, I don't know what the, I, I, I'm sorry, I should have just said I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sorry. How was that? <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, Brad. Um, so uh, I, I guess the same question to you, Stephen. I could, I could, I could uh, ask it again. What, what role does talking about, but also maybe understanding truth or reality, have in Buddhist practice, if any, for you? Uh, for me, well, uh, I've struggled with this for uh, pretty much all of my time as a as, as a practitioner of, of the Dharma. And um, I started, again, a bit like Brad, actually. I mean, I grew up also in a non-religious family, never went to church. Um, Those things weren't really considered to be particularly relevant to the kind of world we lived in anymore. But when I was in late teen, 18, 90 years old, then I really started, you know, these questions became very central to me, very important. You know, what is the nature of human life? What is the nature of of reality itself and how could we possibly know that? And um, I started my training as a Tibetan Buddhist uh, of the Geluk school um, in India, in the community around the Dalai Lama. And the training that uh, I received there was not like Zen at all, as Brad described it, very scholarly, uh, studying classical texts and with the very clear idea that if you if you understand this teaching if you contemplate it if you then meditate upon it you will arrive at ultimate truth not just any old truth but the real the real thing what is ultimately true and that insight will free you from the ignorance that keeps you trapped in the cycle of suffering and birth and death so it's crucially important to uh, to get to grips with what reality really is. And um, I pursued that approach for a long time. But I also uh, became more and more uncomfortable with it uh, for a number of reasons. For a start, there were passages that I was reading in some of these very same texts that were revered that seemed to question that whole approach. 
like traditionally emptiness, shunyata, is considered the nature of ultimate reality, at least in the school in which I was brought up. Uh, and then you go to a source text like Nagarjuna, and he says, uh, uh, emptiness is letting go of views. And believers in emptiness are incurable. In other words, that seems to conflict with the whole idea that, you know, this is the ultimate truth. No, emptiness is not some ultimate reality which, about which nothing further can be said. But emptiness is, a, is simply a, a, a helpful device for you to get rid of being attached to opinions and views. We find that same idea back in the early uh, Pali texts as well that um, uh, holding on to views of what is ultimately true can actually be a, a, a huge problem. And I think in a you know, multicultural world like the one we live in, uh, we are fully aware of how many conflicts in the world are the result of people having you know, conflicting claims as to what ultimate truth is or what truth is or what reality is. Uh, it's a source of incredible conflict. Uh, again, something I think you you know you find uh, you know quite repeatedly in Buddhist tradition. Um, so, I also then got uh, involved in Zen, and uh, I left behind my more philosophical, metaphysical interest in Buddhism, and I kind of, in a way, let go of the whole idea of arriving at ultimate truth, and instead, I became far more engaged. Uh, with uh, the primary questions that human life, uh, in a sense, reveals to us in each moment. You know, what does it mean to, to, to be this person? And I trained in a Korean uh, Rinzai uh, school um, in, in which the, the, the koan, the question that we asked was the question, what is this? And it goes back to an encounter between two monks in 8th century China, Huineng and Huaijiang. And um, Huainang asks uh, Huaijiang, you know, what is this thing? How did it get here? And Huaijiang was speechless. And he spent eight years in the monastery. It doesn't say what he did. But at the end of that time, he went back to Huainang and Huainang said, what is it? And Huaijiang said, to say it is like something misses the point. To say it is like something misses the point. And, and that, to me, is, uh, is kind of where I am with this particular question. Uh, I'm interested in the questions rather than the answers. And if I arrive at some understanding or some insight, I must hold that lightly. It might be helpful. It might be useful. But if I, rigid, if I rigid, rigid, rigidly hold it as reality or truth, I have, I think, in that very act, uh, turned it into uh, a problem. Uh, again, Nagarjuna has this idea that, you know, seizing hold of the Dharma is like handling a snake. If you, if, if you handle it in the wrong way, it will turn back and kill you. Uh, the Dharma is, is, is dangerous in that sense. And if we turn it into uh, and access to some ultimate truth, metaphysical truth, I think we actually uh, go completely against the current uh, that it's trying to, uh, uh, to engage us in. Uh, so letting go of truth 
uh, is for me very, very much part of my practice now to be very wary of such claims and uh, simply to respect what uh, the wise of the world, as the Buddha called them, uh, are the kind of conclusions at which they have arrived. Uh, and I like in this respect the whole idea of scientific truth as something that's, it's not final, it's not the last word on anything, it's simply where we currently have arrived in our uh, understanding of how the world works. Uh, but we've come up with propositions that are falsifiable. In other words, uh, we can move on in that inquiry. And I like that. I find that a much more healthy way to work with this question of truth. And rather than truth, um, and again, Buddhism is full of truth, four noble truths, the two truths, ultimate truth, uh, to think in terms of, of tasks, to think in terms that, uh, that emptiness, for example, is not a truth, but emptiness is actually suggesting I do something. And in this particular case, it's, it's, it's dropping my opinions, dropping my views, or noticing that I have opinions and views. Because the problem with opinions and views is that they kind of leave me stuck and trapped. I can't really go anywhere with that. And they might be helpful, they might be useful to some degree, but in terms of how I respond to my life as it unfolds moment to moment, I'm more interested in how do I respond to it appropriately, ethically, wisely, kindly, compassionately, rather than um, understand or have some view as to what it really is, uh, what the truth of the situation is. Uh, I don't find that language uh, so helpful anymore. And that's my 10 cents on that one. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, so my next question is um, concerned somewhat with uh, how uh, Buddhism has found its way to, uh, to, if you like, the West or to um, uh, the cultures that uh, you both have grown in, grown up in. Um, so uh, one, of the, one of the characteristics of, of, of Zen and Buddhism finding its way into these cultures is, is that uh, we, we're, we're kind of recreating it a bit. We're, we're finding its own forms. It's finding its own forms here. So the question is, is to what extent are, are forms of practice uh, necessary or important in, in the practice of Zen? And, and do, do, do the particular forms themselves matter? Does it matter what those forms are? To what degree do, does it matter? And so I'll ask, I'll ask that question, uh, first of all, if, if I may, to Stephen, and, and then we'll come to Brad afterwards. I have a very uh, ambivalent relationship to uh, forms uh, of practice and uh, institutions and uh, meditation structures and so on. Um, I greatly value them, is the first thing I want to say. And, um, uh, you know, I would not be sitting here talking to you now if those forms and those structures had not been uh, maintained and developed over hundreds of years by people I've, you know, people in Asia, in Korea, in China, India. Uh, so I have a great respect for the continuity of those structures. And uh, I have a respect for the fact that these structures are not there just arbitrarily uh, because somebody liked the idea of them, but they're there because over generations they've been found to work. They've been found to support uh, the practice of the Dharma. And particularly uh, in training, 
uh, when I was in the monastery in Korea, for example, um, I valued enormously uh, the, the, the actual physical structures, the buildings, the aesthetic, uh, the, the geomancy that apparently decided where the monastery would be located in relation to the hills and the forests uh, around. Uh, all of that, I, I, I feel, uh, has, a, uh, has, has a great um, a power uh, in, in a sense, contextualizing what we do when we sit in Zazen. Um, and um, uh, so therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very alert to all of that. But at the same time, I'm aware that when we're not in Korea or Japan or whatever, and we're finding ourselves, say, in, in England or France or in Los Angeles, um, these traditional structures can often feel somehow out of place. They, they somehow feel like uh, an, an intrusion into a different cultural sphere. And uh, they tend to, uh, in a way, sort of stand for a kind of ghettoized little religious group uh, with its nice little Japanese-style temple in the midst of the sprawl of Los Angeles, or whatever it might be. And, um, and there I feel that that has already radically changed the, 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 the organic growth of these structures and institutions over many centuries in a very specific culture and has been exported uh, somewhat uncritically and then planted into a Western or a non-traditional setting. Uh, and that's always happened. And I think that's inevitable. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, you know, I can fully understand that, but, if we look, if we step back and we look at the Buddhist tradition from a larger historical perspective, uh, we see that uh, Buddhism is very good at uh, reinventing itself each time it goes into a new environment. So the temples you find in Japan, for example, uh, have no real <laughs> reference back to an Indian or a a Tibetan style temple or monastery. It's, it's, it's adapted itself seamlessly to fit with the societies uh, and the aesthetic norms and other uh, values that uh, we find say in Japan. And um, obviously if the Dharma is to, is to, find, a, a, to find a similar home in, uh, in modernity in, in the West, over time, it too will, will adapt. And I think there's a danger that we sort of try to push that too hard and think we've got to sort of come up with our own form. I think that these forms are in many ways the outcome of generations of people engaging in these practices and perhaps imperceptibly uh, that gives rise to new ways of imagining the spaces and the structures and the forms of our practice. Um, so I think we find ourselves in, 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 in Europe or in America uh, at a kind of transitional moment. Uh, we're not, you know, we often are borrowing elements from uh, East Asia, for example. Um, and yet we're also aware that, you know, we're not living in East Asia. We're living somewhere quite different. And, um, but I, I think we need to respect the organic growth of communities and persons within those communities is what over time will give rise to forms that uh, will be more naturally adapted to the sort of world that we live in. That's all I really have to say. Thank you, Stephen. 
So uh, same question to you, Brad. What do you, do you see forms of practice as being necessary in, in practicing Zen? And, and again, do, do you feel that the type of form matters? Yeah, well, um, thank you. I, I so much agree with everything uh, Stephen just said that that I could, I don't want to, I don't want to risk just restating what he said. So I'm trying to, as he's talking, I'm trying to think, what else can I say? Because I think, I think he just said it uh, very well, what, uh, what the situation is and how this stuff has come to us. So I don't know, maybe I can just uh, say something about my personal experience of that, if that uh, might be relevant, because I started off uh, studying Zen Buddhism in Kent, Ohio, which is a, a little university town in Northeast Ohio, in a, just a house that my, my first teacher, Tim McCarthy, had rented, and it was a, we, we repurposed the living room as a Zendo. So it, it wasn't, he his teacher had been Japanese, but it wasn't a very Japanese looking space. It just looked like an ordinary, uh, living room you know, in, in America. And his, his approach to practice was, Cobancino was an interesting fellow in that he was originally brought over to America by Shunryu Suzuki to help figure out how to make the San Francisco Zen Center more conform to the Japanese traditional style of, of doing things, because Coben knew that very well. And he did that and he, he helped establish all these forms at the San Francisco Zen Center. But once he got off on his own, he stayed in America and started teaching, he mostly discarded all that. I mean, I, I never actually met Coben myself, but this is what I got from, from Tim. Um, so he didn't do uh, much of that. You know, he, he did it, uh, he kind of adapted himself to the American way of, of doing things and, and uh, got rid of all the traditions. So Tim had learned that style and he, he didn't do much of the traditional stuff or do it in the traditional setting. We just sat Zazen. Occasionally we do a chant of the Heart Sutra. That was pretty much it for the forms. Um, the form of Zazen is important, but I, I, maybe I can get back to that or circle around to that. But so after doing this, I, I'm sort of truncating my history a little bit, but after doing this for 10 years, you know, on and off, whatever it happened to be, I moved to Japan. And then uh, and got a job, as you said, in my introduction with the company that made, uh, the, founded by the guy who invented Godzilla. And I uh, found a teacher in Japan, Gudo Nishima Roshi. And he's an interesting fellow too, in that uh, he, he came, he, he talked somewhat in a similar way to Tim and to Kobanchino, but for different reasons. Uh, he thought that what had happened in Japan is that the Zen had become very, is the word moribund? I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to use big words because I don't know what they mean. But it become very, uh, it it become kind of like a, a almost a play, you know. You, people people understood the traditions. The the Zen people in Japan would would drill themselves on, you know, various ceremonies and various chants and and all this sort of uh, stuff like that, and get very good at it. So they were they were professionals at doing that, but there was it was kind of a hollow thing, you know. There wasn't anything behind it. They didn't understand why they were doing this. There was not much philosophy behind it. Uh, zazen had kind of fallen off because zazen isn't a, isn't isn't really a ritual you perform in front of people. So they don't really do much zazen. They just do the the ceremonies and things. So uh, Nishijima Roshi had studied with Koto Sawaki, who would also 
found the same problems in, in Japanese Zen and Koto Sawaki taught, uh, he just, he just would do Zazen, you know, he'd do very, very little else other than Zazen. So it was, that was the practice. You did this style of Zazen and you did it, you did Zazen in the traditional way, but pretty much everything else, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if you did it in a temple. It didn't matter if you knew the chants, you know, you, you didn't have to do all that ceremonial stuff. Um, so <laughs> next part of my story is that I, after living in Japan for 11 years, I moved back to the United States and I started a little Zen group here in Los Angeles. I, I didn't, I came back because the company, the film production company I worked for wanted to have an office in Los Angeles. So it wasn't, I didn't really come back here to start a Zen organization, but you know, I had enough free time and I was already ordained by that point. So, so I started this group and at first I did it the way Tim had done it and the way Nishijima Roshi had done it in a really bare bones style where, you know, whatever you want to dress like, whatever you want to do, we're just doing Zazen. That's it. And then, and then I went to uh, Tassajara, uh, which is a uh, Zen monastery that I think, I don't know if I mentioned it by name, but it's a Zen monastery established by the San Francisco Zen Center up in uh, the Carmel Valley of California. And uh, spent, I didn't do, I've never done a practice period there, but I spent some several summers there. And they do a very traditional Japanese practice, which is much more like the traditional Japanese Zen practice than I even experienced in Japan because of the teacher that I had who kind of, you know, didn't care too much about that stuff. So I, I did all the formal bowing and the bells and the rituals and all that. So, you know, every morning you get up and you, you, you do this whole um, big ritual. You do Zazen first for an hour and then you do this, this uh, incredibly elaborate sort of uh, Japanese style Zen ritual and you do it every day with all the chants and all the bells and all the, all the movement and, and all that other stuff. And I, and I thought, oh, this is kind of good. <laughs> this is, this is, I, I like this. This has, this, this has some merit to it. So I, I had uh, Greg Fain, who was the, uh, what do they call him, Tanto, which is head of practice there. Uh, I became friends with him and he, you know, I said, here, show me how to do this stuff, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time with him on any free time that we had going to the Zendo and having, having him show me how to do this stuff, because I'd never learned any of this uh, sort of traditional Japanese style ritual practice. And then I started doing it with my group in Los Angeles, and a lot of them hated it. <laughs> and I, and I kind of thought, oh, the fact that you hate this tells me that maybe you kind of need it. You know, it, it, it may be useful. The resistance I was feeling from some of this group toward it made me feel like maybe this is something I should pursue. Um, so I start, I brought in a lot, a lot more of this traditional stuff that neither of my formal Zen teachers had, had bothered with. And, and I kind of feel like at this point, we've, we've hit a nice sort of middle ground between being a uh, more American style and, and with less formality and the, the, the angel city Zen center, such as it is, uh, the physical space of it is a, a house in Los Angeles. It's pretty much the same sort of thing that I encountered with uh, Tim McCarthy that we just, um, we just emptied out the living room and made it into a, a space you could do Zazen and, and a few ceremonies in. So physically it just looks like an ordinary sort of blue house in America. <laughs> Uh, in Los Angeles. 
but uh, but we're trying to do some of the the more ritual stuff and and those forms and I I think they're they're useful. But as Stephen said, we it's we're in the infancy of this. You know, it's barely been in the West for fifty years. Well, well, you know, you could you could stretch that out sixty or seventy years. It's it really hasn't been around for even a century uh, here, and and so it, it's going to take time to find the right way to do it that works for everyone, um, and maybe you know it'll never work for everyone. But you know, some sort of uh, Western style, some sort of European style or American style of Zen will has yet to emerge. But you know, we're just finding our way around it. But I think it's good to honor those traditions. And as Stephen said, you know, the, the, the reason that, that we, he encountered it and that I encountered it is, is because those traditions, traditions existed and because people cared about them and maintained them for century after century. And, and because they work, I, you know, that's a kind of a, you probably had, had have to add a lot of qualifiers to that statement, but, but they, they've been honed. I, I always like to use the, the term research and development. You know, they've, they've gone through a lot of research and development over what works and what doesn't uh, for, for people in various cultures, because a lot of us in the West forget how different China, Japan, Korea, Tibet, these, these places are very, very different from each other. Uh, you know, we sort of look at it as this one monolithic Asian thing, but that's not that's not the case at all. So if it can adapt from India to Japan, which would be two very, very different cultures, it can adapt from, you know, Japan or wherever to to the United States or, or, or uh, England or, you know, wherever it, it lands. So that's, yeah. Oh, now I can't hear you. So thank you, thank you, Rick. <laughs> thank you, great. Appreciate your uh, uh, sharing your, your stories of your experience of form. Um, so th now, uh, Brad, you've you've written um, one or two things about religion and God. Stephen, so have you. Um, uh, quite, th this is maybe where there might be a bit more diversions. It'd be interesting to find out. Uh, first of all, Brad, I would like to ask you this, the same question I'll ask Stephen. But if you could could answer this first, Brad, um, the language of religion and God. Um, can this be helpful in communicating Buddhist principles and, and practice to people in, in the West, in modernity? Uh, am I still, am I unmuted? It's telling me I have to unmute myself, but I did, right? You're good. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I think it's a really interesting question, and that's why I wrote that book, There Is No God and He Is Always With You. Uh, I... I don't know. As as uh, as I said before, I didn't come up with a, a religious upbringing. So the only sort of religious upbringing I ever had was uh, was started with Zen, and Zen traditionally doesn't use w the word God. You know, it's not it's not really part of the of the Buddhist tradition at all. And they and it kind of it, you could even argue that uh, that Buddhism at least as far as it stems from the the older indian tradition rejected the the very notion of of god at least a, a personal god who sits up in the sky and you know does things and you know and created the universe and all that uh on on the other hand tim 
had grown up uh, in, in a Catholic family, you know, nice, uh, Tim McCarthy is his name. So his nice Irish Catholic family. I think his parents actually came over from Ireland. So he, he had that upbringing behind him and he would use the word God, but he would use it in a, in a funny way that I wasn't um, used to because it didn't, it, it no longer referred to that concept of the, the old man on the throne in the sky or, or any, anything like that. It was more like a, uh, something um, m- much more open, you know, that, uh, that God could be. And so I liked that, you know, I liked having some kind of uh, notion of, of God, although it wasn't, it wasn't the traditional uh, notion of God, at least as far as I had grown up with. Uh, Nishima Roshi would talk about, um, he would say the universe is God and God is the universe. He was Japanese, so his his approach to anything like that. Of course, the Japanese don't have a, a strong monotheistic tradition, uh, so so he his understanding of it was was somewhat uh, similar to that. the the uh, The reason I wrote uh, that book, "There Is No God and He Is Always With You," was because I'd felt that um, I, I'd encountered this among western students of buddhism this 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 hard rejection of of anything religious or any any idea of god and a lot of people seem to be very attracted to buddhism because uh it it because they perceived it as rejecting god but when i read things there, there's a certain passage that i refer to probably way too much in dogen's shobo genzo called inmo uh in inmo is a a Chinese word that just means something or it. Uh, and sometimes it's translated sort of somewhat pretentiously as suchness or thusness. I, I mean, that's, that's nice, but it's, I think it's, a Nishijima Roshi preferred to just translate the word as it, but the it he's talking about in this chapter, if you think of it in that way, he could be talking about God. He's, he's, he's talking about something that exists within this universe that, um, for example, he says, we are the eyes and ears with which it, the tools that it uses to, to perceive itself and uh, things like that. Uh, and, and I thought, oh, well, in a way, that's not exactly the same as rejecting God, because often when, when people talk about atheism, they're, they're talking about this kind of hard materialist view of, of reality in which anything beyond um, what we can perceive with our senses and measure is is completely rejected as being uh, just nothing but fantasy and not worth considering. And I think oh, Buddhism isn't quite, at least my take on Buddhism isn't quite like that. But having said that, one of my favorite books of, of Stevens is this Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist. So I really, it's been, uh, I was talking about this on my video channel and I had to check and it's been, you know, 10 years since I read the book. So I haven't, I, I can't remember exactly what was in it, but I remember really liking it and really uh, liking that approach because sometimes I feel like atheism is almost as vague a term as, as the term God. You know, you, if, if I say I believe in God, what what does that mean? You know, it, it it puts an idea into somebody's head. Oh, he believes in God, so he must believe you know X Y Z. But maybe that's not what I mean when I say I believe in God. And the same seems to be true with atheism. I I, uh, I remember um, I, I don't really follow Sam Harris. People think 
for some reason think I must follow Sam Harris's career a lot. I, I get questions about him all the time and I go, I don't know much about Sam Harris, but I remember uh, he came out with, because he's, he's kind of a famous atheist, you know, an American atheist. And he, he talks about being an atheist and he came out with something, uh, I don't know how many years ago that I saw where he talked about how, well, I'm an atheist, but I believe in God, <laughs> you know, and, and he had a good explanation for it, which I can't uh, remember enough to, to quote you at all. But, um, but he was more, it was along the lines of if, if what you mean by God is, is this, this, and this, then yes, I, I don't believe in, in that sort of God. But if what you mean by God is, you know, and then he mentioned a few other things, he said, then I, then I would say, I do believe in God. So it's, so for people who are comfortable with uh, talking about God, maybe it's, it's a useful thing to put it in terms of God. I noticed some of the early Zen teachers to come to America would talk about God. And that's where the, the, the quote I used, the title of that book is There is no God and he is always with you. And that's taken from Joshi Sasaki Roshi, who was one of the uh, first uh, Zen teachers to come to the United States. And he would phrase things in terms of, of God, but he would put it in this paradoxical way. You know, there is no God and he is always with you. Uh, to to kind of get people to look at God a, a somewhat different way than than they might have been used to, and and I found that approach useful and and I liked it and appreciated it. Um, but still, when people ask, uh, "Do you believe in God?" I I don't know what to answer anymore. I used to I, I used to like to say no, and then for a while I like to say yes, and now I'm kind of like I don't I don't know what to say. So I just hope nobody asks me that question. <laughs> Because if you do, I'd have to come up with an answer. So, yeah, there you go. Thanks, Brad. So, yeah, uh, same question to you, Stephen. This will be the last of the formal questions before we'll have a, a short break. Um, so so this, is, this is the question. Can, you, can the language of religion or God be helpful in communicating Buddhist principles or practice to people? Uh, well, my short answer would be probably yes. Uh, depends which people you're talking about, but I suspect people who come from a Christian or a, a Muslim uh, background, and that's the, the language with which they sort of feel at home and comfortable, it's meaningful for them, then I don't really see why you know, Buddhists should make an issue of trying to get them to think and speak differently. Um, but that's, I think, only scratching the surface of this question. Um, in my own case, I grew up, as I already mentioned, uh, in a non-religious family. Quite, My grandfather... Uh, had broken the connection with the uh, Church of England and raised his his daughter, my mother, in a in a humanist uh, atheist. They may not have used the word atheist, uh, but basically a non-religious environment. And I was brought up in the same way. I was exclude. I never went to church. I was excluded from what used to be called scripture classes at school in England at that time. And um, so, as a result. Um, the word God really just doesn't work for me. Uh, it's not part of my active vocabulary. Um, I really don't know what it means uh, at one level. On another level, if I watch a, a play or I read a novel, uh, like the novels of, of Marilyn Robinson, for example, which are very Christian and very religious, um, it's not when I hit the word God, I suddenly say, what on earth is she talking about? I know what she's talking about. I, I, I'm part, as, as, an, as, a, as an educated speaker of the English language, I know how that word works in the language game called English. And I can go along with it. 
It doesn't, dis, you know, I can enjoy the film or the book uh, without having to have the word God defined. Uh, so in that sense, I have to acknowledge that that's part of the cultural environment in which I grew up uh, and which I live now. But as a teacher and as a writer and as a thinker and as a, as a, as a, as a human being, uh, the word God simply doesn't play a role in my life at all. And I can find no, uh, I've no, as, as a translator of, of Buddhist texts, for example, um, I've never uh, found the need, I, I, I've, I've never found the need for a word that I find in the Buddhist tradition that would call upon me to consider using the word God as a translation. In other words, the Buddha was able to teach the Dharma as many generations of Buddhist teachers after him without ever having the need to use a word that we would translate as God. In other words, the Dharma can uh, function as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an ethical uh, system, as a philosophy, as a contemplative discipline, um, without simply, with no need to use the word, a word that we would translate as God. So it's unnecessary. And uh, Brad referred to this book I wrote called Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. And I, I, again, I, I make it clear there that by atheist, I simply mean we don't need the word God in order to speak about the things that matter most to us. And that's the case with me. I can say what, you know, what really matters deeply to me as a human person uh, never requires me to use a word like God at all. Um, so in that sense, um, uh, I, in my own work, uh, in my own writing, uh, feel entirely comfortable uh, with being able to dispense with that language altogether. And I know that that, uh, you know, makes the Dharma accessible to people who um, are struggling with the question of God. Uh, maybe they've lost their faith in, in Judaism or Christianity or Islam, and, but are still feel there's something in their lives that, you know, is spiritual. Uh, there's, there's a deep existential questions that still come to the surface. And they're looking for a language in which to be able to articulate those questions, to be able to develop a life, an ethical life with a coherent discourse. Um, and Buddhism offers them one that simply can do without the word God. Um, on the other hand, I've also spent time, uh, I've been quite influenced in my work by Christian theology, uh, particularly the theology of Paul Tillich, and more recently of the English Ang Anglican theologian Don Cupid. And here you find people coming from, you know, very, uh, you know, developed theological uh, training. They're both priests within their respective churches. And yet, you know, Don Cupid writes this book called Taking Leave of God. One of his colleagues in New Zealand, Lloyd Gearing, calls Christianity without God. And uh, you look at Tilly's definition of God, and God is the, is the groundless and creative ground of being. And I can, you know, I can understand that. That's okay. It sounds a bit like shunyata and dependent originational rolled into one. It's quite okay. Uh, I find Christian mystical writing, uh, Meister Eckhart uh, and others, Cloud of Unknowing. Again, they're using the word God in such a, a way, that, in such a, a different way, a mystical way, that I can kind of go along with it much more easily. Although, personally, I wouldn't maybe adopt that uh, 
language myself. Uh, to me, the term that is perhaps central in this area of life uh, that I do use, and that is the word mystery, uh, that I, I, I think that is an important term. And again, there may not be exact Buddhist equivalents for that. Um, but for me, life is something that is profoundly mysterious. It's something that we cannot grasp in any kind of final or fixed way. Going back in a way to our first question about, um, about truth and reality, we're actually meeting the same issues uh, from a slightly different uh, angle here. Um, and I wouldn't want to lose that. Uh, I, I think the world is, is, is incredibly weird and, and magnificent uh, and, and, and wondrous. And I find that meditation practice, particularly a practice that's rooted in a form of inquiry, you know, what is this, opens me up, not just intellectually, but emotionally, on a feeling level, uh, to the sheer wonder and grandeur of this universe. Um, and for some people, that would be getting close to a godlike language, perhaps. Um, so I, that would be the thing I would worry about, is that Buddhism becomes too sort of narrowly uh, atheistic and rationalistic and so on. And, and, but in doing so, loses touch with this experiential ground of mystery that, uh, for me, is utterly central to my practice of the Dharma. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, so we've got an opportunity now to take a, a short comfort break, but we're about halfway through the evening uh, or morning if you're in, uh, in the States. And um, I, I would suggest that we take about five minutes. You're welcome to mute your microphone and turn your camera off. And then while you're doing that, uh, you might also have a think about if, you, if there are questions you'd like to raise, uh, if you can think about you know, finding a concise way of asking them. And when you come back, you're welcome to um, put those in the chat to me whilst Stephen and Brad engage, maybe pick up on points or questions that each other have made and have a bit of free, free discussion between themselves. So after the break, there'll be a bit of free discussion dialogue and we pick up on some of the points that each other made during the previous session. We're going to record this aspect. Uh, if we do release any uh, of this uh, to more publicly later, we may not uh, release the bit with the questions and answers so that people uh, can feel free to speak without having their, their voices go um, onto the internet. So if you're ready, Stephen and Brad, I think we're going to try and highlight both of you and hide me. And uh, wherever you'd like to pick up on anything that either of you said, any questions you've got for each other, any points you'd like to make, please feel free. Uh, well, thank thank. Uh, I mean, I'll just start. Uh, Brad, uh, I enjoyed hearing very much what you had to say. Uh, and, I, and I agree with you. I think on a lot of questions, we're kind of on the same page. And, and I don't feel much could be gained by, you know, just sort of you know, patting each other on the back and agreeing with each other. Yeah. Uh, I wondered though whether I mean one thing that did come up when you were speaking uh, is is your is your love of Dogen. Mm -hmm. Now I've always found Dogen infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. So. Okay, good. Um, and um, I, I've I've recently the, I'm writing the book I'm writing at the moment. I've, I'm writing a chapter on Buddha nature, which is something outside of what I usually get into. Mm. But one of my starting well, match my starting point on Buddha nature is Dogen. Right. Because I find that his essay called Busho, Buddha yeah. Nature, in the Shobogenza, I think is marvellous. And, um, of course, it, 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 it helps that he actually 
affirms that Buddha nature is what is this thing and how did it get here? The, it's the koan of, uh, of Huineng and Huayran, which I practiced in Korea. So that has always inspired me. It's, it's been a very important mm-hmm. text for me. But when I try to read the whole essay, I find there are little glimpses of brilliance, a sentence here, a sentence there, and a lot of what sounds to me like un, you know, not fully worked out waffle. And, and I'd like to know your <laughs> it's possible. How do you how do you access, how do you get into Dogen? Uh, what your experience? You work presumably with the Japanese. Uh, you're working with uh, teachers who've uh, steeped in this tradition. Share with me what really speaks to you in the work of Dogen. Oh gosh, uh, that's yeah, that's difficult. I have to confess, it's been a long time since I read Bouchot, so I don't. I, I I've read it, but I you know I can't quote it or anything. Uh, it, just in Dogen in general, it was good to study with Nishijima Roshi because he's he was really uh, he was a self-made Dogen scholar. He didn't he a lot of Dogen scholars dismiss him, which annoys me because I think he really did know his stuff when it came to Dogen. But he didn't he didn't come up through a university or anything like that learning about Dogen. He just studied it on his own, and he had a good way of presenting it. And he had this little formula, which was he made up the mnemonic or somebody made up the mnemonic S-O-A-R, SOAR. So subjective, objective, action, and reality as, as saying that Dogen often looks at things in four, uh, through, through four points of view, a subjective point of view, an objective point of view, a point of view that is based on action and reality itself, which is where it gets all strange and poetic. And, and I thought, well, that it doesn't always break down quite as easily as that, but in certain parts of, of his writing, it, it, it's it's hard to refute what Nishijima had discovered there because it does seem like he he just he does it like that. So that helped. But but often I think like you, when I'm looking at Dogen, there are there are points where I'm just like, I have no idea. And what was uh, interesting when I did those books. Uh, don't be a jerk. And um, what's it called? Uh, it came from beyond Zen where I tried to rewrite Dogen in my own words. I was looking at every translation I could find into English of the, of, of whatever work, you know, whatever piece I was working on. And, and also looking at the Japanese when, when, when none of the English translations uh, agreed with each other, I would look at the Japanese and see what it was. And there was, there were few times where, I'm looking at, at a bunch of English translations that seem to all be saying something different. And then I look at the Japanese and I'm going, ah, now I know why they all say something different because I have no idea what this says, <laughs> you know. And probably everybody who's looking at it goes, I don't know what this sentence means, you know. And then they just kind of, they have to put something in there. So they, they put something in there and, and that's what you get. And they all put something different. Um, there, there are lots of places like that. Dogen is a funny character because I, I, I like him because that's the tradition I, I came out of. And, and the more I think about it, the more I think, mm, that's weird. <laughs> uh, because, because Nishima Roshi really loved Dogen and, and Tim was, you know, came from Coben Chino. Tim didn't talk about Dogen as much, but he, he, Coben did talk about Dogen a lot. So we got that. So it was always Dogen, Dogen, Dogen. So I kind of made a point in my early studies of like, okay, this, this is the stream I'm into and I'm just going to focus on that, you know, and try to figure that out. And then, you know, and not, not really, I wasn't really studying the wider Buddhist tradition. And it's only been in more recent years that I've started looking at, at other things in the tradition. And, 
And it's interesting to see how they relate. You know, I'll look at some sutra that Dogen references and go, that's what it says in this sutra. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, 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 um, it seems uh, different. I don't know, somehow. I, I don't know if I would have interpreted it that way, the way he did. Um, and I just, I don't know, I just enjoy it because I just kind of got really deeply steeped into it. Um, he is infuriating, infuriating though. He contradicts himself all the time. And sometimes he just kind of goes off, like you say, and I don't know if he's, I don't know if he's saying anything, you know, he has a kind of economy of words, I, I think. So I don't think he's just putting words in there to, to, to fill up space, but I have no idea what it is sometimes. So, <laughs> so I have the same, the same frustration. Yeah. I like Dogen too, because he, he somehow gives us permission. I think to allow our, po our our poetic side to find voice, and 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 I like. He, I think when I read Dogen, I get the sense he's sort of thinking out loud to himself in mm -hmm. a way, and 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 I enjoy that. Uh, I notice in the um, in the chat here, somebody says, um, uh, "Funny that Stephen finds Dogen infuriating, yet loves Nagarjuna." <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah. Because yeah, I, I suddenly realised. Well, yes, actually, Nagarjuna is not crystal clear either, and yeah. uh, in fact, that's part of the attraction. I, I'm I'm attracted to Nagarjuna uh, in some ways because of the rhythms of the language as much as actually the content of what he says. I just like the wordplay, the games that he uh, he engages with. There's a playfulness there. And I feel in many ways that the, the, the power of the text, like the power of poetry, yeah. comes through not because of some proposition or truth claim that is being made, but because almost through the sing-song effect of the language itself. And yeah. I think that that's somehow communicating, uh, you know, uh, values, meanings, uh, feelings, emotions that uh, uh, cannot be held by, you know, the more, more sort of formal Buddhist sutras and philosophical treatises and so on. And Nagarjuna, I think, is deliberately seeking to somehow overturn that habit of mind to always want to have clear-cut propositions. This is true. This is false. This is right. This is wrong. Yeah. And I wonder whether you feel that Dogen is also playing that sort of game with us as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's some, sometimes when that, that, that uh, aspect that Nishijima Roshi identified as reality in the SOAR, it, when he's talking about that, that's usually the parts where Dogen just kind of says something that you're like, wow, <laughs> you know, it gets very poetic and, and, uh, and funny and, and very open. And so, yeah, I think he's doing that. And I, I was going to ask you but along those lines, you're, when you read Nagarjuna, are you reading it in, in English or Chinese or Sanskrit or because um, it, it's different, you know, that, when you read these things in the there in the other languages. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I I did a I published a book uh, called Verses from the Center. I read that one. I like that one. Which is um, uh, which is a rendition of Nagarjuna, and um, I don't know Sanskrit. I mean, I think that's you know clearly I sh to write a book on Nagarjuna, you should know Sanskrit as a mm. in an academic setting, you wouldn't get away with it. But um, my language in which I trained was Tibetan, and okay. I can read classical Tibetan really quite easily, quite well. It's it's a language I'm quite fluent in, and so I can read Nagarjuna in Tibetan. It was translated oof, probably a thousand years ago from Sanskrit. Uh, and the Tibetan text has got a great beauty to it too. It's in metered verse. It's uh, 
it's lovely. I really enjoy reading. It's not difficult to read. Uh, it's not always easy to say what it means necessarily. <laughs> yeah. um, but what I did was translated, I first did a translation which was very literal, as, as close, sticking as close as I could to the actual Tibetan uh, sentences, the syntax, the grammar, trying to get all of that right. I followed Tsongkhapa's 14th century commentary and tried to get it as precisely as possible without any interest in uh, uh, it being good English or readable. Mm -hmm. And then I took that literal translation as the first draft of a poem. And then mm. I quite deliberately, um, I would walk around my, my office reading this stuff aloud um, and editing it where I felt the, the language, where a line or a verse or several verses was superfluous. Uh, I had the strong feeling that the text was actually contained a number of voices, a, a core voice of Nagarjuna, but probably other material that had been built in sub subsequently. And I tried to boil it down to a language that both kept the poetic power of the text and also did not betray uh, what, um, you know, the, the grammar and the syntax and the structures of the sentences were saying. And um, I found that an incredibly valuable experience. It took me about five years. Mm. I did this while I was in England. Um, it was a very, very rich experience. Um, uh, but in the, in the end, I, I basically produced a version which is really my own you know, my own reading, admittedly a free translation in places, but more poetic. And I hope that that communicates something of what Nagarjuna is trying to do. It's really difficult to do that because you don't, you know, there's no way you can reach back into somebody's mind and say, this is what, you know, tran translators or commentators are always fond of saying, well, what Dogen means here is, and I've done it too, but I, I don't know what Dogen, <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't ask him. What he means, he didn't speak English. He he has a he's coming from a completely different cultural setting, and and uh, just the the technology that's available to us these days and and things is, has changed the world so much that, uh, but so it's it's impossible to say. But it's it's really interesting to try uh, to get into it and to try to say, see if you can say the same thing in in your own way. Yeah, so that's interesting. Well, maybe the question is not to say the same thing in your own way, but to say what is, in a sense, true and meaningful and central to your life in your way. And and I, I that's I feel both Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna, and little Dogen and others are in a way I think giving us examples of uh, of finding your own voice. No, yeah. and this I think is. Um, you know, I'm more and more, I, I feel that this is uh, this is crucial. I think in, uh, in 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 the articulation or the expression of the Dharma is to find your own voice, to become more autonomous in your practice, and to allow your own uh, intuitions and your own yearnings and your own values to somehow find a language of their own. And and I must admit, I mean, when I first read your, which was your first book, uh, Hardcore Zen, Hardcore Zen, uh, what I really liked about it was that. <coughs> The, 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 I, the, your voice came through. A lot of Dharma books about, you know, it's a bit plodding, maybe very sincere and very reverential to tradition and quoting the right sources and so on. And what I liked about your book was that it actually gave voice not only to you as an individual, but to your, your upbringing and culture, your punk whole background, which is to me yeah. completely alien. And, <laughs> um, but that, there was a freshness in that. 
that, um, uh, that really struck me. I didn't necessarily agree with everything you said. That's not the point. But what I really admired was your courage, first of all, to say it in this way. And I could see that this is how the Dharma, in a way, uh, will find its, its course in uh, modernity, is through the activating of voices that have the willingness and the honesty and hopefully the depth of experience to match. Uh, that can somehow help all of us to find uh, a discourse that will break us free from some of these classical figures from Asia and elsewhere, and uh, really, in a way, create a new language. Yeah, I mean, it's got to happen, uh, although it's it's important to try not to uh, distort it or, or add something that doesn't belong there. And that's always a kind of a, a struggle for me is to try to, to say that, you know, what's, what's actually important, you know, to say. Thank you so much, Stephen and Brad. Uh, there are so many questions that I really want to ask you from the ones that have been sent in. There's some really, really good questions. <laughs> I'd love to do this again sometime so you can answer them, but maybe we'll see about that. Uh, it's, but we do need to bring it to a close, I think. So I'm so sorry if you didn't get a chance to have your questions answered tonight, people. It's, it's been wonderful that you joy, joined us. It's fantastic that you've been so uh, inspired by the, the discussion this evening to send in such amazing questions. I'm glad we could answer some of them. Uh, we, we barely scratched the surface, I confess. So apologies to those of you we didn't get to address. Um, and thank you everyone for joining us. It's, it's been a fascinating evening for me and uh, I, I, it's something I've dreamed of for some time and it's uh, wonderful to be able to have this conversation with you all. And I, it's fantastic to have such far-reaching support from this, this international community. All the, the, the financial support that you sent to Guy House and Angel City Zen Centre will be invaluable in, in sustaining those, those uh, Dharma centres into the future. Um, so it just remains really just to say thank you so much, Stephen, for supporting Guy House, both as a, as a patron of Guy House and in, in the way you have done tonight. Thank you, Brad, for your contribution here this evening and for supporting Angel City Zen Centre and to both of you for your great writings. I'm sure on behalf of everyone here, we, we deeply appreciate everything that you have brought to us this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.